Let's turn together this evening to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, we're looking at verses 1 through 13 this evening. Uh, That's on page 1002 and 1003 of your church Bibles, if you have your church Bibles. I'll invite you to turn there, uh, and let's leave our Bibles open this evening uh, as we hear from God's Word. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 1 and and reading through uh, verse 13. This is God's Word. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should come should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed entered that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he had for for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterwards, And the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, for all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forevermore. Most of us are, are desperate for rest. At least we, we at least think we are. It's actually one of the, the driving forces behind most of our lives. It's certainly one of the driving forces uh, behind the economy. Uh, many in, our, in our, our world work so that they can get to the rest bit, don't they? They want to earn enough to, to go on city breaks at the weekend or, or go on a nice holiday uh, in the summer. We can't deny the, the human need for rest, can we? particularly when we, we look at uh, the increasing numbers of uh, burnout or, or uh, mental health struggles due to work and life pressures. And so the promise of rest should be one of the most attractive aspects of the Christian faith. But ironically, when it comes, when it comes to faith, we want to work harder, don't we? This is in part the, the complaint of the writer of the Hebrews, the, the church uh, in and around Rome of, of converted Jews. Well, it was probably a, a small house church that he was writing to. We're considering turning back to Judaism, back to works of the law. And the writer of, of the Hebrews calls them to remember the, the history of Israel, and he warns them not to make the same mistake that their, their forebears who failed to enter the promised land when they were brought there by Moses made. So far in the letter to the Hebrews, the writer's proven the, the superiority of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. He's shown us the implications of that sufficiency and that we, we have a real salvation in him, a real hope. 
of salvation. Tonight he gives us a stark warning, doesn't he? He says to the church that if, if all of these things of Christ are true, then, then you stand on the, on the cusp of salvation, of, of the holy rest that's found only in the Lord. He tells them, don't miss out. And there's three ways in which he calls the church to take seriously this, this great hope of the rest that we enjoy through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are three points this evening. He says, let us fear. He says, let us lay aside our works. And he says, let us strive. So first, let's look at let us fear. Now, I know most of us think that fear is the exact opposite of rest, don't we? But that's not the kind of fear the writer is talking about here. The kind of fear is that, that he's talking about is, uh, is, is the, the fear of uncertainty. It's a, it's a worldly fear that looks at the, the concerns and powers of this world as, as being greater than the Lord God Almighty. He's saying that if we, were, we are to, to enter God's rest, then our, our fear of the world has to be replaced with, with a healthy fear and a positive fear of the Lord. Solomon in the, in the Proverbs said this, didn't he? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, the writer to the Hebrews illustrates this by giving them an example from, from their very own history, the history of Israel. It was a history that these new believers in Christ would have known well because of their Jewish heritage. He, he refers them back to the moment when, when Israel has, has come out of Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea on, on dry land. God has, has provided for them in the desert by raining down bread from heaven, the manna, uh, each morning for them to eat. They come to the, the border of the promised land, the very land that, that God had promised to, to his servant Abraham, their forefather. And a group of men are, are sent in to, to spy out the land. And they go all through the length of the land, and they return with these, these massive vines of, of grapes, to show how good and fruitful the land is. But all but, but two of the men sent to spy out the land said it was impossible to take. They said the, the people of the land are, are bigger than we are. They're like giants. They're bigger, they're stronger, they have better weapons. There's no way that, that we could possibly take this land. And only two men, Joshua and Caleb, said that the, the God of Israel was greater than than even these people who inhabited the land that he had promised his people. The Israelites in the desert, despite all that they had, had seen and experienced of the, the Lord's work and blessing and deliverance, turned away from the land in fear and rebellion. They failed to enter the, the land of promise and find in it the rest of the Lord God. Rather, they spent a generation wandering in the no man's land of the desert, all because they feared man rather than fearing the Lord God. You see, the problem for most of the Israelites is the, the same problem most of us have. Their God was too small. They didn't actually believe that the Lord God, uh, they didn't actually believe in the Lord God Almighty. Yeah, this was the, the same problem that, that was troubling the, the young church of, uh, of Hebrew converts uh, in and around Rome. They were facing the pressures and persecutions of, of both the empire as well as the, the Jews in the local synagogues. When they looked at their persecutors, they, they thought they're too, they're too great. They're too mighty. They're too powerful. They're too strong for us. And if they're too strong for us, 
but they must be too strong and too powerful for the Lord God. You see, the human heart, the struggle of faith has, has changed very little in, in 2,000 years, hasn't it? And even longer than that, when you count the Israelites. We still struggle with believing that God is, is great enough and big enough and powerful enough to overcome his and our enemies, to lead us safely into his rest. Is God big enough to, to allow me to keep my job when I take a stand for his truth? Is God big enough to, to provide a place for his church when the minister continues to, to preach the truth of his word in a hostile culture? Is God big enough to, to convert my children and to keep them safe from the pressures they face in the local schools? You see, we tend to ask these questions from a worldly perspective, don't we? But what if we properly understood the, the power of the Lord God and, and began with a, a proper fear of him? The questions begin to, to look different, don't they? You see, when Joshua and Caleb went into the promised land, they were, they were the only two who didn't ask, is God big enough to overcome these enemies? No, what they asked themselves is, are these people big enough to overcome the God who parted the Red Sea and who rains down bread from heaven upon us each morning? See, the difference is key, isn't it? It completely changes our perspective. If you want to know the rest of the Lord God, then it begins by knowing who he truly is. It begins with a, a healthy fear of him. It begins with knowing his sovereign power and loving character towards his people. If we're in Christ and belong to God, the church shouldn't ask if God is, is great enough, but rather if there's anything in this world, anything that can possibly overcome our great God. Is there anything in the world big enough to separate us from his love? The world can certainly disrupt our comfort. The world may be able to, to inconvenience your, your personal five-year plan. But the sovereign God over all creation is never surprised. And he's never thwarted. And so let us fear God alone. Second, the writer says, let us lay aside our works. The writer uh, reveals to us that next the, the nature of God's rest that's what we're called to enter into. It's, it's verse 9, and he says it's a Sabbath rest, doesn't he? Look back at nine, verses 9 and 10. He says, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. What does he mean by a Sabbath rest? The Sabbath rest is, is part of the creation order. God made everything. Uh, in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested from his work of creation. And he, he calls his people to do the same. That's what the writer of Hebrews refers to. What this became is a, a picture of God's grace as well as the hardness of the human heart. When the Israelite spies looked at the promised land, they saw a land full of strong people they, they couldn't overcome. And they, they failed to enter because they wanted to enter in their own strength. They couldn't rest in God's leading and the Sabbath reveals the same thing about, about the human heart. Why wouldn't we want to stop from our labor and rest? Why wouldn't we want a day where we, can, where we can lay aside our works and we can rest and we can worship the living God, the God who created us and made us? God himself rested on the seventh day. 
So why don't we? We're told the answer in verses 6 and 7. It's because of the hardness of our hearts. We want to earn our salvation, don't we? Or at the very least, we want to, to capture our own meaning and purpose in this world. Why, why couldn't the Israelites trust God to, to fight their battles for them? Because they wanted to save themselves. They wanted to contribute something to the equation. They were looking at things with, with human eyes. So why can't we take one day out of seven to rest from our work? That should sound wonderful to us, doesn't it? Shouldn't it? So why can't we do it? Because that work is all we have, isn't it? For most of us, it's, it's what defines our, our personhood. It's how we value ourselves. What have we done to leave our mark on the world? How much do we get in our bank accounts from what we do? You know, far too often I get asked the question, what, what, can I, what can I do on the Lord's day? What I'm really being asked is, what can I get away with? Because I can't really be expected to take a whole day out of the week and rest. It's actually mind-blowing. Especially in our modern world where, where everything is, is becoming automated. There, you, know, you, should have to, you should have to work less, not more. And it's mind-blowing that, that this is such an issue for God's people. We should be loving a day of rest. We should be asking, what, what do I have to do on the Lord's day? Do you know what you have to do on the Lord's day? It's an easy one. It's wonderful. You don't really have to do anything. That's, that's the point. You can, you can rest because, because you don't have to justify your existence by working. You can rest on the Lord's day because you don't, you don't have to try and, and, and justify your existence by scoring a goal in some uh, pub football league. You can, just, you can rest at home. No one cares about that anyway. You, you, you don't have to justify yourself. The Lord Jesus Christ has justified you. And because of that, you can, you can gather to worship him. You get to worship the Lord God on his day. The rest of the Lord, the Sabbath rest, is, is powerful. And it's wondrous rest because it's, it's a rest that actually transcends, doesn't it? We get a taste of it now in the Lord's day, a, a day that reminds us that, that we have nothing to add to our salvation, that we, we need not fear the powers of this world. We simply need to enter the rest of the Lord God. We're not... We're not a people defined by what we do, but rather a people created to know and glorify the living God. This is why we celebrate the Lord's Day in worship, fellowship, and, and rest from our work. But it's a transcendent rest. We taste it now on the Lord's Day. And the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ we experience in real time. But we will experience the fullness of it when we enter that land of, of promise that the children of Israel failed to enter that day the land that, that Christ is preparing for us. We'll experience the rest fully when we enter the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ at his return. Verse 8, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Christ has brought that day nearer. And as that day is coming soon, there's a day coming when we'll enter the fullness of God's rest. Joshua cannot give God's people that rest Neither can we give ourselves that rest. So we should lay aside our works and we should look to the Lord Jesus Christ as the giver of true, holy rest. Third and last, we're told to let us strive. Every point 
uh, seems to contradict the last, doesn't it, tonight? Uh, let's lay off our works and let's strive. <laughs> What's that about? Let's look again at, at 11 through 13. He says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. If we're not saved by works, then how are we to how how are we to strive to enter God's rest? He gives us the answer, doesn't he? He says uh, we do so by persevering in Christ and in His Word. He calls us as God's people to to increase in holiness and, and not disobedience, to allow the Word of God to to do its work in us. And it's a hard work, isn't it? That's 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 the difference, isn't it? That, that the, the, the Hebrews, the, 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 the group, that, the church that the writer is writing to, were in danger of, of, of casting off Christ and, and, and going back to works and works of the law. So he says, strive to, to trust, strive to hold on to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Did you notice how he describes the works, though, in verse 12? That, that, the, that the word of God does in us. He says it's a living and active word. You know, the, the scriptures, the, the Bible, isn't a book of mere wisdom literature, is it? It's not a book of, of wise sayings or with good practical suggestions on, on how we should live our lives. It's actually a book that acts uh, like, a, like a brutal weapon. That's what a double-edged sword was. The, the Romans would, would carry swords with an edge on both sides. And, and when they would strike, it would, uh, as he, he describes it here, it would pierce, uh, it, it would divide, uh, it would pierce um, ligaments and, and divide uh, bone and marrow and everything else. It's, it's a brutal picture, isn't it? I like to consider it more like the surgeon's scalpel. In the right hands, it's, it, it, it could bring death. Or in the wrong hands, it could bring death. In the right hands, though, it restores to life. It's a, the, the Bible, the scriptures, act like the surgeon's scalpel. It'll cut deep into us and, and, and cuts away the cancerous disease of our sin in our hearts. And it's painful. And it often feels like death, but it's... It's how we're made alive again. Verse 13 is, is true, that we're, we're all naked before God. And if that's true, then the question becomes, how, do we, how should we clothe ourselves? Do we clothe ourselves in our own efforts? That's what Adam and Eve tried to do, wasn't it? And they sewed together fig leaves, and, and it was insufficient. It's better to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, to stand before God naked and unashamed, as we were created to be by him. But for that to happen, we have to fully allow his word to do its work in our hearts. And this is why Jesus is, is the great physician. Because he knows how to use the scalpel of God's word to bring to life his people. Uh, my favorite illustration of this is, is from the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Uh, the, from the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. 
uh, when the character used to scrub, who's this obnoxious little boy, he, he stumbles upon uh, a dragon's treasure, and he, uh, he, he slips on a, a bracelet over his arm and, and falls asleep, and when he wakes up, his arm hurts. And after a while, he realizes that, that he's been turned into a dragon because that's what a dragon's treasure does. And eventually, he has to be a, abandoned by, by his friends and his shipmates until the lion Aslan arrives. And here's how, how Eustace describes what happened when Aslan came. And I'll close with this. He said, I knew I'd have to do what it told me. So I got up and followed it. And it led me a long way into the mountains. There was a garden, trees and fruit and everything. In the middle of it, there was a well. The water was as clear as anything. And I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in my leg. But the lion told me I must undress first. So I started scratching myself, and my scales began coming off all over the place. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke, you'll have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And then he began pulling the skin off. It hurt worse than anything I ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. He peeled the beastly stuff right off just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I, don't, I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and threw me into the water, it smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. And that's the beauty and the wonder that the writers to Hebrews is capturing here. That, that the word of God tears away all of us that, that shouldn't be there and restores us to who God created us to be, holy and righteous in his sight. Let us pray.